0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Gary Cohen, founder and president of Healthcare Without Harm, a leading nonprofit dedicated to eradicating toxic waste produced by the healthcare system and leading health systems in this country and around the world to net zero emissions. Fresh from an appearance at the UN COP26 climate change summit, Cohen says the new U.S. commitment to addressing climate change is a bellwether moment. Lori Robertson also checks in the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Gary Cohen, here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with Gary Cohen, founder and president of Healthcare Without Harm, an international organization promoting environmentally responsible healthcare. He's built a coalition and networks in more than 70 countries dedicated to reducing the impact of health industry pollution on climate change and health.
2: His work has earned him the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant. The White House Champion of Change Award and the Skoll Foundation Social Entrepreneurship Award. He just presented at the UN's COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow. Gary, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks
3: very much for having me.
1: All eyes were on Glasgow recently. Uh, world leaders came together uh, for the UN COP26 Summit. A number of commitments were made to bring us closer to net zero carbon emissions globally. What do you think about the agreement? I know there was some controversy uh, as uh, India and China had some language change uh, around coal, but tell us uh, what the outcome was and what in your mind was the most significant agreement uh, to come out of the gathering.
3: Yeah. So uh, I would say the overall uh, conference was a mixed bag. So on the one hand, the level of ambition required to keep the planet warming from being catastrophic, we didn't get there. So the commitments that were made uh, fall short of the desire and the need to keep uh, temperatures within 1.5 degrees centigrade. In fact, the commitments would actually increase uh, global temperatures uh, potentially up to f- uh, four degrees. That's abstract. But th- the point is this is at at two degrees centigrade. The estimates are that it will expose one billion people on the planet to extreme heat. However, there were some positive things that happened there. There was a strong commitment to uh, stop deforestation. There was a strong commitment of 30 different countries to stop uh, selling gas-powered or diesel-powered uh, cars by 2040. And companies you know, committed to that, Ford, General Motors, Mercedes-Benz, Volvo. Other uh, car companies didn't uh, commit to that, including Toyota, Volkswagen, and mm-hmm. Nissan. In our space, more than 51 countries committed to to a health program that we established with the World Health Organization and the, the British government. Um, they committed to make their healthcare systems climate resilient to the extreme weather that we're all facing, and also to decarbonize their healthcare systems. So in an interesting way, healthcare for the very first time really came to this event and made very serious commitments mm-hmm. to its role. Mm-hmm. So that was huge.
2: Well, Gary, at the COP26, you were with a, another recent guest of ours, Assistant HHS Secretary Rachel Levine, and talking about this very critical issue of the role that climate change plays is already playing in health inequity. And you've said that the Biden administration's new initiatives will address what you call the moral wound of health inequity uh, that is now fueled or accelerated by climate change. Maybe uh, talk with us about the role of climate change in health equity and contributing to health inequity. And how do you see these initiatives having an impact in that area?
3: Right. So what we learned from COVID is that exposed all the racial and social inequities that we face in our society? Uh, black people died at twice the rate of white people. Native people died at three times the rate of white people. Um, people who were vulnerable already, who had pre existing conditions, especially respiratory conditions, were more likely to die. And if you look at the climate crisis, we see that force multiplier playing out in the same way the most uh, polluted communities in America, many of them are in communities of color. If you look where the petrochemical plants are, where a lot of the refineries are, where a lot of the incinerators are, where the truck routes are, where there's a lack of tree uh, cover um, because of, of decades of redlining, those are all symptoms and consequences of structural racism in the country. So in some neighborhoods of Baltimore, In the summer, it's 5 or 10 degrees hotter because there is no tree cover. So as we start to understand the health impacts of the climate crisis, it runs right into our our racial reckoning as a nation. And Mm -hmm. so that as we move away from our reliance on fossil fuels, we also have this incredible opportunity to heal some of the racism that we've lived with for generations. And that's That's the special role of the healthcare sector. And it's also, thankfully, a goal of the Biden administration, where they want to put some of their investments in clean energy and addressing the the decades of environmental injustice in those communities, put some of the money to address those injustices and right those communities, Uh, invest some of the clean energy strategies in those communities. So Mm -hmm. that's that's the first time we have a government in this country that's centering itself in in climate solutions and centering itself in in racial equity, uh, the
1: president this week uh, on the White House lawn signed uh, a bipartisan uh, 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill. It really, uh, I think, did a lot. But to help our listeners understand. What is so vitally important for climate change in that legislation? And also on deck is the Build Back Better bill that's uh, hopefully coming out of the House and then over to the Senate. Uh, What's at stake here?
3: Well, so the the infrastructure bill that did pass uh, creates some important uh, upgrades uh, in clean energy and transportation sectors. It includes electric grid modernization electric vehicle uh, charging infrastructure, um, some kind of carbon management and research into new technologies. It goes a piece of the way, but the real transformation is in this other Build Back Better bill, which would put the the United States on a a very robust pathway to move toward a clean energy economy in, in many, many dimensions. There's $320 billion for clean energy and transmission and vehicles and manufacturing. And there's money to address air and water pollution uh, focused in frontline communities. There's clean energy and sustainability accelerator, like a $30 billion that would put uh, some of these investments in disenfranchised communities, this sort of Justice40 initiative. There's $100 billion in resilience in terms of climate smart agriculture, forestry, Coastal restoration. It's creating a, a whole civilian climate core um, with a diverse workforce of 300,000 members, another 110 billion in clean and globally competitive uh, industrial facilities, clean energy and vehicle manufacturing. So there's so much more in that other bill that is being negotiated that would be an enormous signal to our economy, a stimulus to our economy. And, and it would demonstrate enormous leadership to the world that we could meet the goals that the administration has to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 50% from 2005 and 100% by 2050 at the latest. Um, so it's a big deal. And the first bill doesn't come close to, to doing that, that stimulus that's required. Um, it would have been ideal if, if Biden would have been able to go to Glasgow and say, we've got that all wrapped up, but it's still being haggled over, obviously.
2: Right. Well, Gary, uh, toxic waste in healthcare is certainly a big problem and people of a certain age and uh, probably half the people that work with us uh, have never seen a mercury thermometer, right? Something that was just, it was everywhere. And that was one of your most successful campaigns at healthcare without harm that We all owe you a debt of gratitude, uh, eliminating mercury thermometers across the healthcare landscape, which really were a big contributor to toxic waste. But healthcare itself is a big contributor. And in so many communities, healthcare is the biggest employer. It's a real economic engine. What are you seeing in terms of uh, the work that the health sector and the healthcare sector can do uh, at reversing that trend of being a contributor to toxic waste?
3: Yeah. Well, so the amazing thing about the health sector in this country is that it's the biggest. Uh, it's the biggest part of the economy, besides the U.S. military, and it's the one part of the economy that lives within this ethical framework of the mm-hmm. Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And so there's this opportunity to, as it's addressing its toxic climate footprint it can achieve health outcomes that are positive. We can actually improve the health of all Americans by addressing our reliance on fossil fuels, for example. Fossil fuels, independent of their climate contribution, globally are killing 8 million people a year because of the particulate matter, um, according to the Harvard School of Public Health. That's more than AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. So just cleaning up the air and moving away from coal and oil and and gas uh, will actually improve Americans' health. Also, healthcare is a huge user of of petrochemical plastics, Mm -hmm. um, which are choking our waterways, which are full of toxic chemicals and additives, which create dioxin when they're burned. And so moving away from petrochemical plastics can help stimulate a green chemistry economy to move away from those. As we move away also from the over-reliance on meat, Mm -hmm. we move to a little more plant-based diets. It's good for people's health. It's good for agriculture. It's good for the planet. So there's a lot of different interventions that hospitals and healthcare can make and aggregate its power to signal the rest of the economy of the direction we need to go. And because they are anchors in their community, they're economic engines, we are working with them to say, as you're doing energy efficiency in your own facilities, support energy efficiency in low-income housing in your Mm -hmm. community so that you reduce the incidence of asthma and respiratory disease. As you're offering healthier food for your patients, your employees, and your visitors, support more local sustainable and equitable farming that's more Mm -hmm. climate resilient, that doesn't use pesticides. So there's ways in which they can see themselves as sort of the epicenter of creating healing beyond their four walls into the communities they serve and into the planet that sustains us all. Because what healthcare needs to come to grips with now is that it needs to operate at three levels, at the individual's health, the community's health, and the planet's health.
1: We're speaking today with Gary Cohen, founder and president of Healthcare Without Harm, seeking to mobilize the healthcare sector to address the climate crisis as a medical emergency and to decarbonize healthcare. You know, Gary, I was listening to you sort of a build back better for the healthcare system strategy, and you're really talking about some of the operational elements of it, but the whole design of, of the health system seems to be uh, be in need of uh, change. Uh, the pandemic has certainly provided some opportunities uh, to be a force multiplier, both in terms of access to health care, but also in terms of our carbon footprint. Telehealth being one of them, right? Uh, people do not have to drive in. Now, we're in the primary care side. Certainly, the role community health centers play, 1,500 of them, 10,000 locations. And guess what? All those locations are in those targeted, environmentally sensitive neighborhoods that Mm -hmm. you talked about. But what about the design of the system? But isn't it that we have to sort of reimagine the delivery system in ways that use uh, distant communication so patients can be monitored? What are your thoughts on that? Who would you say is a best practice?
3: So, I mean, you're exactly right. We have to redesign the healthcare system so that it's not focused on treating chronic disease. They're always sort of in the mop-up operation. We've got a society that has got structural racism, has got vast amounts of unemployment, it has polluted environments, it has toxic stress, and we have chronic disease. And so the healthcare sector is at the back end of this system. And what it needs to do is it needs to be about health, creating health. And that means changing the financing and the incentive system to move upstream and address the housing, address the food systems, address the violence, address the pollution in communities that are making people sick in the first place. That's a fundamental redesign. Because we are facing this climate crisis, it needs to anchor the resilience of communities. So it's not only does it need to be the last building standing in the next Hurricane Katrina or wildfires in California, but it needs to understand the vulnerabilities of the communities that it serves. Who is on ventilators? Mm-hmm. Where are the communities that are already in the, in, in, you know, living with air pollution so that if there's wildflowers, it's going to be much worse. So there's a kind of a redesign in culture and in thinking and financing so that we're we're using these money to create health. There's some important kinds of, of mechanisms that we need to instill at the highest level of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, that does that, if we said to every hospital in America, you know, you do emergency planning, but you need to do climate resilience planning because there's new realities, heat, stress, wildfires, hurricanes. You need to understand the vulnerabilities of your community, the social determinants of health. Uh, In order to get Medicare reimbursement, you need to measure your carbon footprint and make progress toward the goals of the Biden administration. There's some very, very fundamental problems with our healthcare system. I'd say the system that has the potential and the mindset to make this transition is Kaiser Permanente, because it's both a health insurer and it runs hospitals and Mm -hmm. clinics. So from the point of view of a membership of a health insurance agency, they want to keep people healthy, save them money. And so they don't want people showing up in their emergency rooms. Mm -hmm. The other system is, is the Veterans Administration. It's a system we control. And so we have a strong national interest in in helping veterans be healthy Mm -hmm. and deal with the trauma that they come with from uh, being in Iraq and Afghanistan and Mm -hmm. other places. Having control over the entire system gives the system a chance to actually promote health as opposed to just treat disease. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I think you're uh, absolutely right, Gary these are all leverage points. and I think you're absolutely right. We need to push those uh, levers to get the results that we want. And one of the partners that you have that we were interested uh, in hearing about is the National Academy of Medicine, which is looking to address climate change in the healthcare setting. A big piece of this is going to be about how we train the next generation of healthcare providers and one thing we have on our side, I think, is, is young people tend to come to us pretty environment aware with a bit of an activist format, but what's your vision for how the work of the National Academy of Medicine and their uh, platform to address climate change in the healthcare setting, uh, what's your vision for that approach and, and what do you think some of the outcomes of that might be?
3: So I think the National Academy has is, is got a, a strong focus on uh, decarbonizing healthcare, making it climate resilient focusing on on equity issues. Um, And the other dimension of their initiative is how can we educate uh, the next generation of clinicians, doctors, nurses, and others? And the current uh, generation is Mm -hmm. to make them advocates, make them messengers for changing the narrative around the climate crisis. So it's not seen as polar bears on melting ice caps, et cetera. But it's about asthma. It's about heat stress. It's about wildfire. They've done a lot of opinion research around climate. And it turns out that when you focus on health, people care because they care about their own health. They care about their family's health. And they're more likely to act inside of that narrative, new narrative. Health professionals are the best messengers. And What COVID showed us is that they're truth tellers. Mm -hmm. When you have politicians lying about the severity of COVID or telling you to do some cockamamie kind of solutions that aren't going to be good for you, the public health and and health professionals in the countries have been truth tellers. It's like, no, this is, we're going to give you the real story, the real advice. And so we want to leverage that trusted voice for climate solutions. Because it may be that health may be the one lever in addition to jobs that helps to unlock the partisan divide in the country and say yeah you know actually we all care about health don't we mm-hmm. so the national academy of medicine is, is been incredibly helpful because they're convening all of these incredibly important players to say let's solve this together the american mm-hmm. hospital association american medical association all these big industries that are supplying health care the joint commission the right parties are at the table to actually do some of the redesign you were talking about and, and accelerating uh, this transformation because we don't have a lot of time. We need to make this change in a very profound way over the next decade.
1: Gary, I think our listeners are asking themselves, I, I really like what I'm hearing. Tell me more about how I can uh, participate in healthcare without harm, or uh, you've talked about the need for advocates. Uh, so maybe uh, lay out some uh, opportunities for people uh, starting with mm-hmm. the the organization that you founded,
3: yeah. So uh, you know, healthcare that harm has a lot of tools, um, and and strategies and case studies that that demonstrate that there's so many ways to enter into changing the healthcare system from food to energy to buildings to plastics to waste to and so for people that are in the sector, there's lots of places to engage and to Advocate within the systems they're operating in, whether that's a clinic, or whether that's an acute care hospital, to make this this kind of transformation. In the clinical advocacy space, there's a number of uh, of initiatives that uh, exist. We launched um, with an organization called the Alliance of Nurses for a Healthy Environment a thing called the uh, Nurses Climate Challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole website with materials and op-eds and, and ways of engage uh, people in, in the facilities you work in, but also to become advocates in the communities that you serve to bring that trusted voice forward. There's a, a partner organization called the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health that's got half of the doctor, uh, physician organizations in the country all at least signing on to climate as a, as a strategic imperative. And there's lots of materials in those places and in others to get engaged and to short circuit our learning curve so that we are bringing forward um, health professionals as heroes, as planetary healers. There's so many other opportunities for just engaging in your local community. You know, like Everybody says, well, what can I do as an individual? I would say, what can you do as a community? Like band together, there's all these, re- you know, renewable energy standards that are coming at local levels and state levels. So there's ways to engage wherever you find yourself. We
1: we remind everybody who's in healthcare leadership that it, unless you're talking about climate and the environment, you're not going to attract the next generation of young people who are leaders they're going to go elsewhere. So uh, if you don't get the bigger picture, you're just going to lose out to all of that talent that's out there.
3: It's true, actually. It's turning out that sustainability is one of the interesting kind of drivers for people making decisions about their employment, especially this new generation. But you know, one of the things that has happened as a result of COVID, COVID was you know, hospitals and clinics were the epicenter for dealing with the trauma. Of this, you know, Mm it's not as visible to the public, but inside of hospitals and clinics, there was so much trauma that doctors and nurses had to face that there's a real people leaving the the profession, especially nurses. And so when you talk to hospital leaders around the country now, they're saying, we have the dramatic workforce shortage. And so part of the healing that we need to do is also to heal people that have actually taken care of people mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. last two years. And so one of the things we're trying to explore is, are there organizations we can partner with that can offer some kind of trauma-related kind of care for yeah. the nursing staff mm-hmm. and others who have just witnessed so much crisis in their yeah. facilities? Yeah. real yeah. tragedies?
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Well, thank well, you so much. A lot of work to do. Yeah, a lot,
1: a lot of, of work, work to, to do. do.
2: We've been speaking today with Gary Cohen, founder and president of Healthcare Without Harm. An international campaign that promotes environmentally responsible healthcare. Learn more about his award winning work by going to noharm.org or follow them on Twitter at HCWH Global. Gary, we want to thank you for your vision, uh, your leadership, your passion for addressing healthcare within the context of climate change, for your commitment to building a healthier planet while addressing the crushing weight of health inequity. And we wanna thank you for joining us again today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Aaron
4: Rodgers, the star quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, made headlines when he contracted COVID-19 and then defended his decision not to get vaccinated with a string of false and misleading claims. In a November 5 interview, Rodgers drew a distinction between vaccination and immunization, saying that he had not previously lied about being vaccinated because he had been immunized via a homeopathy protocol. But there is no way to have immunity to the coronavirus without either being previously infected or being vaccinated. Homeopathy is a form of alternative medicine for which there is little evidence of effectiveness for any health condition. In the interview, Rogers asked, quote, if the vaccine is so great, then how come people are still getting COVID and spreading COVID and unfortunately dying from COVID? The answer is that no vaccine is 100 percent effective. And while the COVID-19 vaccines in use in the United States are highly effective, some cases, hospitalizations and even deaths are expected among vaccinated individuals. However, the data show that the risks of getting the disease and dying from it are higher among the unvaccinated. In the month of August, during which the Delta variant accounted for nearly all infections, unvaccinated people were six times more likely to test positive for infection and 11 times more likely to die from COVID-19 than the fully vaccinated. Rogers also said he was taking the anti-parasitic drug ivermectin and wrongly said medicines being tested by Merck and Pfizer were, quote, expensive versions of ivermectin. They're not. Pfizer and Merck have announced positive trial results for easy-to-take pills to combat the disease, but those antiviral medications are very different from ivermectin. So far, studies on whether ivermectin can effectively treat COVID-19 have been inconclusive. Health officials have warned people not to self-medicate and not to ingest ivermectin intended for livestock. Rogers also baselessly cited concerns about the COVID-19 vaccines and fertility as one reason why he remained unvaccinated. There is no evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines have a negative impact on fertility. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
2: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. According to Michigan organic farmer Michelle Lutz, healthcare spends too much time and money trying to fix the problems that are caused by a poor diet. But the powers that be at the Henry Ford West Bloomfield Hospital agree with her. For years she had offered organic food growing and cooking demonstrations at the healthcare facility just outside of Detroit. But when officials drew up plans to renovate the hospital, they decided to take it to the next level. A million dollars certified organic hydroponic greenhouse and garden were built and Les was hired away from her farm to run the operation. When you have the
5: opportunity to heal someone, it is very important that what they are eating becomes part of that plan. That cliche saying we are what we eat is absolutely true.
2: The facility now provides most of the nutritional organic greens vegetables fruits and herbs used in the food that is prepared there not just for patients who have come there to heal but for their families and hospital staff as well
5: the layout was very important so that we could have a very complex diverse variety of herbs and produce for the kitchen to use in the winter time and in the fall we changed to more of a cold tolerant crop And then in the summertime, we are now transitioning to the point where we're picking cherry tomatoes and we have sweet peppers and things like that.
2: Lutz says there is an educational component to the program that's ongoing and multi-generational. Right now, we
5: are averaging 3,000 students per academic school year that go through our Healthy Habit program. And so we are lucky enough to have kind of a dual combination here of offerings. We have a demonstration kitchen, and then we have the greenhouse right behind the hospital. It is not uncommon for a nice day for us to have a nice stream of doctors and nurses out there just to be in a beautiful setting and how therapeutic that can be but to also you know have them ask questions about what it is that we're growing and how is that being used
2: The nation's first hospital-based year-round certified organic hydroponic greenhouse one that provides fresh fruits and vegetables to patients who are healing and the clinicians working to heal them and teaching the next generation about the benefits of organic produce for a healthier diet the
5: idea of being just a hospital doesn't work anymore you have to be a community center for wellness.
2: Now, that's a bright idea.
1: You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark
3: Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.